Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's installment of The Wonderful World of Wine here on Franklin Public Radio. I am your co-host, Kim Simone, with my friend, Mark Lindsay. How are you this week, Mark? Everything is good, Kim. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm great, thank you. All uh, geared up for September and the world is getting a little chillier. And uh, Football is here, so football football and wine pairings have to be talked about. That's right. Believe it or not, started thinking about the holidays and fall oh. wine tastings. <laughs> it's like, yeah. where did the summer go? So yeah, Going here we fast. are again. Going fast. So what's Going first fast. today, Kim? So we've got a little wine history to talk to people about. I think that this is something that we've mentioned once or twice before in our show, but there was a very comprehensive article about one of our most fascinating sort of things you didn't know about the wine world. <laughs> Little bits of history uh, in Vine Pair, which is a, a website that we love. And this was about how wine bricks saved the U.S. wine industry during Prohibition. And Prohibition may only have lasted a few years, but it had massive impact on the wine industry, alcohol industry in the U.S. And still, even 100 years later, really has impacts on our current drinking patterns. So it's fascinating, I think, social way of looking at how the industry that we are a part of, Mark, responded to a serious crisis. Um, And we've been talking a lot about how during COVID times, a lot of our wineries and restaurants and retailers like yourselves, you know, a, a lot of us in the industry have really had to make a quick pivot and adapt very, very quickly and creatively to new situations. And this is exactly what grape growers and winemakers had to do uh, in the 1920s during Prohibition. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk in detail how they adapted and also how they were a little sneaky, but creative. So sneaky. Which, which happens <laughs> quite frequently nowadays on how they do things on labels and things like that. So they're still always doing the same thing. And I'm kind of surprised, Kim, you said a short period of time for Prohibition. It was what, 1920 to 32, was it? It was in it 13 years? It was 13 years. years. In the grand scheme of things. That's a long time for no wine, Kim. In the grand scheme of things, 13 years is not that long. It wouldn't happen 13 days now. Hopefully not. No, no, no. Knock on wood. Cross your fingers. (laughs) So you said the vineyards had to adapt. So prohibition hits. And the first thing is they say that the wineries can no longer make wine for regular consumers. So what are they going to do, right? They had to, right. they had to adapt. And they thought maybe this will end soon. So if it ends soon, we don't want to rip up our crops because if we replant and then we want to go back to grapes, it's going to take another three, four years. We don't mm-hmm. want to do that point. So some people said, well, we're just going to stick it out and we're going to yeah. we're going And to I think adapt. that that was, that was smart. I mean, it might not have felt that way to them at the time because they were really hedging their bets. Like, how long will this last? Will this last for decades? Will this only last a couple of years? So I think that's another kind of parallel to 
modern times, it's like, how long is this going to last? <laughs> like, Do yeah. we need to completely change the way that we do business? Or is this a short-term solution to a problem that hopefully will not be here for very much longer? So yeah. Um, I think a lot of the ones who were true farmers said, I'll just move to another a crop and they, a different they, crop. they moved yeah. to like orchards, they, mm-hmm. they planted. So, and but- that's one of the reasons why we see like almond orchards and hazelnuts and all of these other crops that were really planted in the shadow of prohibition. Once grape growers could no longer grow grapes, they they tore up their vines and they planted new crops. So that's another one of those sort of secondary impacts of, of prohibition. The law came at the time was the grapes could be grown, but could only be made for into non-alcoholic drinks. Right. Or, or the winery people could go to jail. So what the Volstead Act did was it made it illegal to sell, ship, and purchase alcoholic beverages. So if you were making wine, you could make it, but you couldn't sell it. You couldn't buy it, except for very, very specific cases. Like churches could still purchase wine for religious ceremonies. Right. But if you were just a person at home, you were legally allowed to still brew beer. Uh, actually, you couldn't brew beer because people couldn't homebrew at that point. But anyway, but you could still make wine if you could right. get your hands on grape juice. And that's where the creativity came in with with a lot of these grape growers. Yeah. And they said at that time, you could legally consume 200 gallons at your home, consume of wine, but uh, it wasn't, you couldn't buy it. You could, you could make it for your own personal consumption and up to 200. That's a lot of wine. And so the smart wine makers of the the vineyards, they adapted. And what did they do, Kim? So they still continued to grow the grape varieties that they had been growing, but then they processed their grapes in such a way that they dried them out. So they they got the juice and then they consolidated and dried them into these blocks that really literally looked like bricks that you would use to you know build your house with. And they <laughs> sold them to people to make quote unquote grape juice with. So they would, so the consumer would then take this brick of grape concentrate and then dissolve it in a gallon of water and voila, you have grape juice. But they got very creative with the labeling on their wine bricks, didn't they? Yeah, that's the good part. The warning. This is the, the fun warning. part. They did put a warning, but they stated that the warning do not add. They basically told you how to make wine by saying don't add water, don't add yeast, and don't put it in right. a cool place for 21 days. <laughs> I, I love the stipulation right? of don't put it away don't for 21 this. days. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, which is what smart. I, I love to know who originally. How in the that. world did that get past? Like if that were nowadays, there's no way that that would make it past. What, what is it? The the TTB. The, the TTB. Yeah. Well, I don't know. A lot of things get past. I don't know how. <laughs> That's true. But, but just very creative. So they would get these <laughs> bricks and it would say, don't do this. And they they basically people knew how to make make it anyway that were buying these. And then the word spread and everybody. So they kept them in business by creating these wine bricks. And I associate those wine bricks, Kim, to when you buy that coffee that's, um, mm. what do they call it? Freshly uh Yeah, it's like hydrated. Vacuum, it's the like vacuum sealed vacuum. ones. Exactly. Yeah. Vacuum sealed. That's yeah. what I was So it was for. like really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and when you, and you open, open it up, it, it was like... And yeah, so that was the uh, the warning they put on it, and it ended up being a great success. And and you I mean nowadays, 
I kind of Googled if they technically call them still wine bricks, but you can buy grape concentrate and grape must. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people to this day make wine that way. They, mm -hmm. they buy in bulk the, the must and the concentrate, but they don't make it in that brick form. No. any longer that I could find. It's like big uh, Home Depot buckets of uh, mm -hmm. concentrate and stuff like that. Or like, um, yeah, you'll find them in like bigger sort of cans, you know, almost like if you were getting a really big can of tomatoes to make tomato sauce with. There are a lot of different ones that you can find at home brewing stores and they'll have the grape varieties on them, you know. So if you wanted to make Riesling or you wanted to make Zinfandel or you wanted to make Merlot, it's fairly easy to go to... Google a local homebrew store and any place that has a good supply of beer making supplies will generally have a good make good supply of wine making supplies too. So you can just go in there and browse and see what the what our modern equivalent is of these wine bricks. I thought I saw just recently like on the um, Pawn Stars or something where someone brought one of these bricks in and I thought it was going to be, wow, this thing's got to be worth a million dollars because everyone had to have made them into wine, right? But I guess there was there's not really a big demand farm because there were so many that oh, were out there. They're and that are still out there? To be found. Yeah. I was shocked. Huh. It was, in, you know, the original package and everything. I've never seen one. I just saw it on this yeah. show. So, but I. Well, they're like in California. Said, so maybe yeah. there's, it's, you know, a much more uh, typical historical find out in California. Yeah. But you I figure they've got to be almost a hundred years old now. Yeah. the pa I mean, it was in like a little brown package box. Huh. So very, very ingenious though. Yeah, very smart. And I love how you referenced how today in with the COVID and everything, everybody had to adapt. And that's what they did back then. When times mm -hmm. were tough, they adapted. And it's just a good thing about the wine world. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. For more information about Kim, you can find her on VinitasWineWorks.com. For more information about myself, you can find me on FranklinLiquors.com. Every week, we're here with you on WFPR 102.9 Franklin Radio, and you can find past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Next, we have a story that uh, we want to tell listeners about, Kim. It was called The Most Extreme Wine Tastings Around the World from uh, foodandwine.com. And when I first saw the headline, Kim, I have to be honest, I thought this is going to be like, how can we taste wine and do something extreme? You know, I'm thinking like, we're going to be on a roller coaster and tasting wine. And how is this going there to happen? There are a few like that, though, in this yeah, article. Yeah, a, a I was, you know, I think we're going to, then I was thinking, how are Kim and I going to do this? How are we going to tackle some of these extreme Ooh. tastings? What was your take, Kim, when you first saw the headline? Was it, were you thinking like me or you didn't know? Or I was thinking it was more that the wines were going to be extreme. So kind of um, so we both went different directions we went in different directions yeah. but it ends up that it's sort of tying back to our last little segment about prohibition and getting creative with your wine tastings and this is just a nice list of things that different wineries or different wine groups are doing to make wine a little bit more exciting and accessible and interesting and outside <laughs> Right. <laughs> As you know, people are trying to social distance and maybe not all be crowded in one tiny little tasting room. And I thought that there were really some fun, creative examples of different things to do while tasting wine or to add to the wine tasting experience, which was really what I got out of it. That this is a great list of ways that wine tasting 
is being made a little bit more interesting by having these other sort of activity components added to the wine tasting experience. So it was kind of fun. I liked how you said that added to, because I always, I wanted to refer this to when we started doing wine events, it was, this is the basics of wine. Then we say, let's do food and wine pairings. And then as we kept doing them, we had to come up with more really extreme ideas of how, you know, how can we do? So then we were like, all right, let's do yoga and then we'll have wine. You know, let's do painting and then we'll have wine. So it really relates to exactly what these people did all around the world. An activity with the wine. But that ties in. But that still ties in. Do you have a favorite from this list? Because I absolutely had a favorite. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Now, this is, we probably, I want to know yours first. We probably don't have the same favorite. I think there was one from Croatia that I liked that you had to dive into the sea to reach an underground wine cellar, pick your favorite bottle and bring it up. And then you had that with a wine dinner. That one was really cool. That wasn't your favorite though. That wasn't my favorite, but it was probably in my top five. Yes, this one was really cool. I'm going to find it in the article so that I can. Yes, that's pretty extreme. You know, first they have to teach you how to dive. Right. So there was a scuba diving lesson. And then you took what you learned in the lesson to go into this underwater, perfectly temperature controlled wine cave. And you got to choose your bottle of wine for dinner using those diving skills that you had just learned. So I thought that that was a really cool way to tie those two things together. So hopefully people have both a passion for diving and a passion for wine at the same time. Yeah. But if you had people who, like you said, they want to dive, but they might not like wine or they like wine and never do they mix the two and you get the best of both worlds. Out. Yeah. That'll still be pretty so what, cool. What was your favorite? I liked the one. So that was Croatia, right? Yeah. So there's one in Slovenia Boy. where you have a oh, yeah. Yeah. blind <laughs> tasting, literally blind because you go cave diving. So you go and you do this hike through these caves and you get to a place where it's completely black and you can't see anything. And then you taste wine. <laughs> so yeah. you can't cheat and you can't see the color and you can't see anything about the wine. And then you do a little wine tasting and then you have to climb out after you've tasted. Wine. Yeah, that was a good one. I it, thought that was pretty cool because I would it? absolutely do that. Yeah. And it's a great way to experiment with wine because they say, you know, you're not seeing the color. You you can't really tell if it's red or white. Yeah, so that's what I liked about it. That was a good one. Yep. So there, and were, there some, were other things in yeah, here too. A, like, a lot of other. What other ones yeah. would you like to tell so, us about? So um, there was one that for a champagne house, they would take you on a a jet flight over the vineyards of Champagne so that you got to see what everything looked like with a little bit of a bird's eye view. And they would, you know, do some crazy maneuvers up there in the sky. So you could not just a jet, a fighter jet. So not your typical fighter jet, you know, I'm not into airplanes. So I'm just saying it's more like uh, crazy stunts. They do at crazy speed. So the pilot would take you on this adventure in a fighter jet and then you would see all the vineyards and then you would come down and actually taste the wines that were made from those vineyards. So that's pretty neat. There were some... A lot of outside activity. Yeah, a lot of outside activity. Kayaking, some mountain climbing, hiking, some things with food. So there was... Yeah, um, that food sort of one was, I thought, where you were going to go for your favorite. In, in oh, San, is this the oyster uh, Louis, one? Yeah, San Luis Obispo. 
you go and harvest your own oysters and yeah. then you have a pair them with wine. I thought I think that would be cool too. And there are there actually are folks who do something similar here with lobstering. So you'd go and you'd fish for lobster, not fish for lobster, but <laughs> you know, you'd collect lobster and then you'd bring the lobsters back and you'd cook them and you would have a meal with wine and uh, with those lobsters that you caught. So I think that this would actually be something that could be completely doable on the East Coast and not just on the West Coast. This one's from California, but they actually did something very similar in the most recent season of Top Chef. They did oystering and they did like clams and things like that and then paired them with things. So not a completely unusual thing on like, you know, cave diving <laughs> for right. your wine. In Virginia, they had the kayaking. <laughs> yep. They called it paddle your glass off. <laughs> So you kayak and then you, and I see that very common up in Maine where they take you on these crazy whitewater rafting and then you do, you know, a nice dinner and stuff after. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned the mountain biking that was in Michigan. You go mountain biking and then you do a wine tasting. And I thought another unusual one was in Napa. You hike Pritchett Hill, which is 1500 feet. And then you do a wine tasting. So that's another outdoor activity. One I thought was fun we should we could do kim was in oregon they play football and then have wine so that's that's like perfect for right now they all get together at outside park and they did some sort of football so i mean we could do something like that can i play baseball instead uh, <laughs> uh, i guess that goes with wine Sorry. we can pair, we can pair <laughs> that that works I don't think you're going to get me to play football. What, uh, what do you I'll bring my saxophone and and I'll, and I'll be the band and you can play football. <laughs> I mean like you were saying I mean there's so many things in New England that you could really do an activity and, and yep. pair it to a wine. Even, you know, even locally, there's so many things you could do. What, and what we do, you know, we do extreme? have wineries who have changed a lot of their tasting room experiences to be only outdoors. So outdoor tastings and food trucks and all those sort of fun things that people can do when the weather is nicer and just be outside and not only enjoying the wine and enjoying some wine and food pairings, but then you get to enjoy the view and the idea of just being right there in the vineyard. So that's something that luckily we do have some local places that we can do that for our local Massachusetts and New England folks. And you don't have to live in a wine region in order to be able to experience those. You know, we have our own teeny tiny little wine region here. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at franklinlickers.com and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. For our next article, we found a great little piece in Wine Enthusiasts talking about something that Mark and I often will argue about. How long should you let your wine breathe? This is something that comes up when we do wine classes together. He likes to pour them way ahead of time. And I don't. Yeah, we <laughs> just talked about this. Things. Yeah, we just talked about this when we were talking about temperature. Yeah. And, uh, what temperature to serve the wine. And that has to do or is related to letting a wine breathe. But I think first, Kim, we should tell the listeners, what do we mean when we're saying let a, a wine breathe? What's so the it definition? just means to let the wine come in contact with the air with oxygen for a little bit of time. You don't get it by just popping the cork. So just opening up your bottle of wine generally doesn't do too much. 
with because... letting the wine quote unquote breathe. You think it does? No, I said, because why? Tell our listeners. Because you're only allowing just that teeny little bit in the neck of the bottle to have contact with air. If you really want to let your wine have full exposure to the air, you need to either pour it into your glass or you need to pour it into a decanter so that you have much more oxygenation kind of mixing with all that liquid. Would you agree? It's all about the air and how much air, which helps the wine open up, as I, I like to say. And we, we talked about gadgets, the aerators, the decanters. And I think one of the best tips they started with, like you mentioned, when you open it, because that little space in the bottle, the neck of the bottle is not real a lot, just pour it in a glass a little bit in the glass. So there's more air now in the bottle. And then the first glass you can have has already been splashed into the glass and it's already been aerated by the pour. So mm -hmm. I thought that was a good tip to just... When you open it, pour a little bit, just like they do with the professionals serve you in a restaurant. They always take a little bit out and they sample it or they let you sample that little bit. I thought that was a great tip to start with. Yeah. So I have to say that I think I'm coming around a little bit to the idea of letting your white wines open up before you serve them. And here's why. Because as we've found over the last few years, we've got more and more bottles that are bottled under screw caps instead of with corks. And sometimes you will find a little bit of a kind of a stinky, kind of eggy, like hard boiled egg kind of off odor from the sulfur that the that sometimes the wines will be bottle finished with to, to keep them fresh for a little bit longer. So I have been noticing that a little bit with some of my wines that are bottled under screw cap. So I will admit that perhaps opening those and decanting them a little bit, just a little bit ahead of time, like maybe 15, 20 minutes, maybe isn't such a bad idea. Oh, that's good to hear. And it, coming it, around. not all wines need to breathe. And Right. And, and you right? know, it, we talk about decanting a lot. And yep. so aerating and decanting can be viewed as separate things. So when we talk about decanting, we say that, all right, there are two reasons why you might want to decant a wine. One would be because it's young and you want to give it that air, right? And the other th thing would be because the wine is old and you want to separate it from any sediment stuff at the bottom of the bottle. So we're really talking about aeration being an equivalent to decanting in order to liven up or wake up one of those younger wines. So, you know, it's an interesting use of language because I feel like now I wonder if we will stop using the word decant for younger red wines and just start calling all of that aerating and save the word decanting for just pouring wine off of its sediment. I like years ago, I heard something from, about decanting. Think of it like a diaper. You need it when it's young and you need it when you're old. So that was, I thought, one of the best. I always remembered that tip. I have never yeah. heard that. Never how, heard have that you, one? how have you never told me that one before? Uh, I just told you and all the <laughs> listeners too. Remember it. That's amazing. Right? It's I true totally though. I'm going to use that. It's totally true. So Do you remember where wines, you heard that the first time? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure I laughed like you did. Though, right? <laughs> so Goodness. young wines, like a like a young red, tends to be typically tannic. So it needs more time to breathe. And they actually gave us some tips, Kim, 
a young tannic red, you should let it breathe like 10 to 30 minutes before you try it, right? Let it open up. Mm -hmm. And older vintages, now this is what you were getting at. A lot of times when you have an older vintage, it may be dangerous to let it get too much air or let it breathe too much because it might be on the threshold of its peak. And by letting it aerate too long or breathe too long, it could be hurting the wine. So you have to be careful with older vintages, as you were saying. And I think on you were talking about whites. They mentioned white and sparkling 10 to 15 minutes to let it breathe for a time frame. So do you agree with that as far as the I still wouldn't that? I still wouldn't do sparkling. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because it it most of the time I don't think I've ever remember even having to use a decanter or area or anything on my sparkling because it kills yeah. the, the bubbles. It kills right? the bubble. So I wouldn't use it on sparkling, but I might give, you know, my my whites 5 or 10 minutes max to kind of blow off whatever little sulfury smell there might be in there. I I actually think that for young reds, their suggestion for 20 minutes to a half an hour might not be long enough, frankly. Well, some of them are a little bit more funky, as we like to say. Yeah. And plus, you mentioned the screw cap. Great point there, Kim, is that don't forget when you open that screw cap up, that wine is filled right to the top. There's no airspace at all. So that wine has been sealed tight with basically no air getting to it into the bottle. So it will need a little longer to breathe. Absolutely. So what I was saying before about your red wines need a little bit more than just like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It is really, I think, a fun thought experiment and a great way to learn about wine. If you spend some time with that bottle that's been decanted and just taste a little bit of it over time, maybe a few ounces now and then a few ounces in a couple of hours, maybe save a little bit for tomorrow. And we've talked about this in other shows, you know, where we, if you have an open bottle that you don't finish in a day or two, keep tasting it and see what happens to it. And you can really learn a lot about wine by doing that. And I think the same holds true with bottles of wine that you've decanted. You know, if you taste it right out of the bottle, right after you pour it into the decanter and, you know, you swirl it around for a little while and you give it that 20 minutes or a half an hour or an hour, keep tasting it and see what it does. And you'll learn a lot about the changes that a wine can go through. And you will probably like it better at one point in its transition than at another point. So keep that in mind so that you know what you like best. And so that in the future, you can know the right drinking time for you, as opposed to what a review might say, or what on the back of the bottle, they they tell you (laughs) the, the drinking window should be. So you learn a little bit about the wines and you'll learn a little bit about yourself too. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and Kim and I enjoy talking wine with you every week here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. If you ever have any questions or comments, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We post all these articles we talk about. We post some follow-up articles, and basically everything that we do, we post on there. If you have any questions or comments, please send them, and we'll talk to you again next week. Cheers. Bye.